welcome to another Salvation by Grace midweek message. Salvation by Grace is the teaching ministry of Grace Christian Assembly, a Sovereign Grace Fellowship in Smyrna, Tennessee. You'll find us on the internet at salvationbygrace.org. We are currently studying the book of the prophet Jeremiah. So grab your Bible and join the congregation of GCA along with our teaching pastor, Jim McClarty. We are in Jeremiah 14 tonight, to absolutely nobody's surprise. Let's start by handing out a couple of verses. Uh, Mr. and Mrs. Basil, could I get you to read? Jeremiah 3, 2 and 3, Elizabeth. Yeah, and then Jeremiah 12, 4, if you would, Mr. Basil. Tom, would you look up Jeremiah 2, 13? And we will get to all of those eventually. What you need to know in order to understand chapter 14 is that God has promised a drought. And the drought is the backstory to this entire chapter because the people are feeling the pains of the drought and the famine that has come upon them. And so there is a conversation back and forth between God and his people through Jeremiah. Now, typically in the Bible, when you see these kinds of pleadings by people to God, what you typically read, like in the Psalms or even in the New Testament, what you typically see is people pleading to God and then God responding with comfort. God responding with security. Very unlike what we're going to see tonight in chapter 14. The people are going to plead to God. Jeremiah is going to plead to God. And God says, I don't care. I don't want your sacrifices. and I'm not going to listen to your prayers. And I'm mad at you. And I'm going to punish you for the way that you have behaved. So this is... Really interesting to me because it helps to expand our concept of who God is and what God is truly genuinely like. For instance, the people in this chapter are going to bring their sacrifices. They're going to go to the temple. They're going to do the stuff, the religious stuff, to try to appease God and to get his sympathy back. And God refuses to accept it, proving that God can refuse to accept the worship of people whose heart is not truly with him. He doesn't care about the sacrifices. He doesn't care about the animals. He doesn't care about the religious practices, the rudiments of religion. What he cares about is hearts that are truly turned to him. Fortunately, by the end of the chapter, it looks like the people are starting to learn the lesson. And the drought is for the lesson. The drought and the famine, the hardship they are going through, is for the lesson of turning them back to him and recognizing that their own gods of wood and metal, their foreign gods with whom they have committed adultery, cannot help them at all, can't do anything for them. When Yahweh, the real God, the maker of heaven and earth, when he decides that he is going to afflict you, can't nobody do anything about it. No humans, no foreign gods, no pretend gods. Nobody can help you when God decides that he's out to get you. 
And that is, again, the big difference between the God of the Bible and every other so-called God in the history of humanity. This is the only God who can tell the future before it happens. This is the only God who can tell you what history is and, more importantly, what the meaning of that history is. Not only what happened, but why it happened. This is the God who can bless and nobody can change it. He can open doors and nobody can close them. And he can punish and nobody can help. So he is truly a sovereign God. We talk a lot here at GCA about the fact that God is sovereign, but part and parcel of his sovereignty is the fact that he can truly, genuinely do whatever he wants. And within the covenant that he has made with Israel, he has promised them, he has already sworn to them covenantally that if they do not keep his law, if they do not follow hard after him, that he will punish them with drought. And then they don't follow after him. Then they do chase their foreign gods. And then God brings the drought. And just like human beings, the people of Israel turn to God and goes, hey, what happened? I thought you liked us. But God is only doing exactly what he said he was going to do. So in the big picture, when God judges people, when God sends people eternally out of his presence, when people are consigned to outer darkness, where there's gnashing of teeth, where the worm never sleeps, where the fire's never quenched, all that kind of stuff, people are going to say, but I thought you liked me. The people who would say to Jesus things like, well, didn't we do all these great works in your name? And he said, I never knew you. So it truly genuinely is up to God, God in his choosing, God in his election. But at the same time, there is a responsibility laid upon us who are in covenant with him to react to him in such a way that we make obvious that we recognize that he is God and that he is the only God and that he is the sovereign God and that he deserves his worship. I had a really interesting conversation yesterday with someone, a therapist, I'm doing therapy for my shoulder, and she was talking about being a, a Christian woman, talking about her church, brought up church regularly, tried a couple of times to kind of quote verses, couldn't quite do it. But she talked about COVID. She actually asked me, what is your COVID protocol? And I said, I don't know what that is. What is a COVID protocol? And she said, well, are you up to date on your boosters and vaccines? And I said, uh, no, I'm a long way from up to date. Uh, I haven't taken any. I didn't take the vaccine at all and none of the boosters. Fortunately, she responded, I thought I was going to have a, a big argument with a liberal person. She actually said, oh, good, because she's into more of a holistic method of healing and stuff. So in the course of the conversation, she mentioned that her church closed down during COVID. And I said, we never did. We never closed our doors. We never just acquiesced to the government and to the fear and said, okay, we're going to close our doors. And of course, now with the advantage of hindsight, it turns out we were correct. But I explained to her, I said, we 
believe that God is sovereign. We believe that God is in charge. And it would make no sense to talk for 20 years about a God who is completely holy, righteous, and sovereign, who deserves his worship, and that God who is in charge of even things like disease deserves his worship even during times of disease. So it makes no sense to say God's in charge of this disease, but for fear of a disease that God's in charge of, we're not going to give him his worship. And so we never did shut our doors. We just continued. Now, granted, there was a Sunday morning when I was talking to four people. I remember that Sunday. But then the next week, it was eight people, and then it was 12, and then we we just built back up again. So this is a God who deserves his worship no matter what, because he is sovereign, he is holy, he is righteous, he is the maker of heaven and earth, and he deserves his worship. But... Part and parcel of that worship is to worship him in spirit and in truth because he can see through fake worship. And there was in Jeremiah's day a lot of perfunctory worship going on. God saw through it and said he didn't accept it. And there's a lot of that going on today. Uh, If I wanted to be controversial, which you know I, I avoid like the plague. I'm never controversial. You know that. But if I wanted to be controversial, I would say so much of what's going on in the modern church world that is really performance, especially where the music is concerned and the music programs and stuff, is really just putting on a show and people refer to it as worship. In fact, they use the term worship service when the music is going on. Then the preacher gets to talk for 10, 15 minutes And that's not the worship. Then they return to worship, and the worship team comes back on the platform, and, you know, they're back to worship. But genuine, true worship of God, I think, is focused on the word of God. And by the way, that's what God believes, too, and he's going to say that in this chapter. That because they didn't listen to him, they didn't listen to his word, they didn't pay attention to his word, so despite the fact that they brought him the sacrifices, despite the fact that they did the perfunctory stuff of worship, apparently, their hearts were in the wrong place. So what did it matter? So I would argue that the steady study of the word of God combined with a heart attitude that is toward God, that is the way that we ought to be doing it, not thinking that we can fool God through our performance. Anyway, so Jeremiah 14, God has promised them a drought. For instance, in Leviticus 26, 14 to 19, God says, this is as he's laying out the law for Israel, but if you do not obey me, And do not do all these commandments. If instead you reject my statutes, and if your soul loathes my judgments so as not to do all my commandments, and so break my covenant, I, in turn, will do this to you. I will appoint over you a sudden terror, consumption, and fever that will waste away the eyes and cause the soul to pine away. Also, I will sow your seed uselessly, for your enemies will eat it up. And I will set my face against you, 
so that you will be defeated before your enemies. And those who hate you will have dominion over you. And you will flee when no one is pursuing you. If also, after these things, you do not obey me, then I will discipline you seven times more for your sins. I will also break down your pride of strength. I will also give your sky over to become iron and your earth like bronze. And your power will be spent uselessly for your land will not give forth its produce and the trees of the land will not give forth their fruit. So God's very clear here in Leviticus. If you don't do my law, if you don't keep my covenant, if you break covenant with me, I will make sure that your sky does not rain so that I bring on you famine. He repeats it again in Deuteronomy 28, which I know we read here recently going through uh, Jeremiah, but I just want to emphasize one part of it. Deuteronomy 28, starting at verse 15. But it shall come about if you do not obey the Lord your God to be careful to follow all his commandments and his statutes, which I am commanding you today, then all these curses will come upon you and overtake you. Cursed you will be in the city. Cursed you will be in the country. Cursed will be your basket and your kneading bowl. Cursed will be the children of your womb, the produce of your ground, the newborn of your herd, and the offspring of your flock. Cursed will you be when you come in, and cursed will you be when you go out. The Lord will send against you curses, panic, and rebuke in everything you undertake to do, until you are destroyed and until you perish quickly on account of your evil deeds because you have abandoned me. The Lord will make the plague cling to you until he has eliminated you from the land where you are entering to take possession of it. By the way, did you notice in that verse that God just took credit for disease and said, I'll make sure the disease gets you and stays with you. That's the God who's in charge of disease, which is what I was just talking about a few minutes ago. You still worship the God who's in charge of disease, even if there's disease around. Anyway, it's a very biblical concept is what I'm pointing out. The Lord will make the plague cling to you until he has eliminated you from the land where you are entering to take possession of it. Verse 22, the Lord will strike you with consumption, inflammation, fever, feverish heat, and with the sword, with the blight, and with the mildew. We're talking about the God who's in charge of mildew. This is the God who's in charge of everything. He is sovereign. And they will pursue you until you perish. The heaven which is over your head shall become like brass. And the earth which is under you will be like iron. So no rain, no food. No rain, crop failure, famine. The Lord will make the rain of your land into powder and dust. From heaven it shall come down on you until you are destroyed. Okay, so the law God has already said, if you don't do what I tell you to do, I'm going to bring famine on you. I'm going to bring pestilence on you. And then sure enough, 
it happened. Now, earlier in the book of Jeremiah, there are already references to the fact that that is beginning to happen. This is over the course of years, and by chapter 14, the famine has become really bad. The people are really suffering under it. But they have been warned repeatedly. For instance, Elizabeth is now going to read us Jeremiah 3, 2 and 3, nice and loudly, if you would, Elizabeth. Lift up your eyes to the desolate heights and see, where have you not lain with men? By the road you have sat for them, like an Arabian in the wilderness, and you have polluted the land with your harlotries and your wickedness. Therefore the showers have been withheld, and there has been no latter rain. You have had a harlot's forehead. You refuse to be ashamed. Okay, so here is God through Jeremiah telling Israel, because of your harlotries, because you've chased after other gods, there's no rain. There's going to be a famine in the land. So they've already been warned that God is going to keep the very promises that he made in the covenant with them, that if they break covenant with him, he's going to bring famine on them. And then that was predicted earlier in Jeremiah. Jeremiah 12, 4 says what, Shane? How long is the land to mourn and the vegetation of the countryside to wither for the wickedness of those who dwell in it? Animals and birds have been snatched away because men have said, he will not see our latter ending. So animals, birds are all suffering because the land is now withering. There is no vegetation. There is no food. And the animals are suffering because of what men have done. Because human beings have broken covenant with God. So these things have been increasing now up until chapter 14. And when we begin chapter 14, it says, That which came as the word of the Lord to Jeremiah in regard to the drought. So if we had just begun there without doing some background work, the natural question would be, what drought? But this drought had been coming and increasing on Israel as part of God's punishment of Judah that is going to culminate in them being taken into Babylon. That which came as the word of the Lord to Jeremiah in regard to the drought. Judah mourns and her gates languish and they sit on the ground in mourning and the cry of Jerusalem has ascended. Now what Jeremiah is doing there is that he is personifying the people of Jerusalem as the city. He's referring to Jerusalem, but he's talking about the people. The gates themselves are not on the ground crying, but the people within the gates certainly are. The people in the city of Jerusalem are going through a tremendous amount of difficulty. It's very much like when Jesus spoke to Jerusalem and said, Oh, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, you that kill the prophets and kill those that were sent to you. And he says, how often I would have gathered your children like a mother hen gathers her chicks, but you would not. Okay, who was he talking to? He was talking to the leaders in Jerusalem and their obstinance against him. But he refers to them collectively as Jerusalem. That is a personification of the people in Jerusalem. That's what Jeremiah is doing here. Judah mourns. Judah is crying. Her gates are languishing. 
They sit on the ground and they just mourn and cry. They don't even have the strength anymore for lack of food to get up. They're on the ground and the cry of Jerusalem has gone up to God. It has ascended. And their nobles, the rich men, the mighty men, their nobles have sent their servants to go get water. We don't know where it is, but you servants, you go find some water and bring it back here. And they have come to the cisterns, and they have found no water. And they have returned with their vessels empty, and they have been put to shame and humiliated. And they cover their heads, a sign of mourning and grieving. There's just no water to be found. Now, interestingly, earlier in the book of Jeremiah, as Tom is about to read for us in Jeremiah 2.13, Jeremiah is going to talk about God as being the source of living water. Here's what it says. For my people have committed two evils. They have forsaken me, the fountain of living waters, to hew for themselves cisterns, broken cisterns that can hold no water. So God says, I'm the source of life. I'm the source of living water. And instead, you've gone and created your own gods, your own sources of water, your own sources of life. Broken cisterns that can't hold any water, that cannot sustain your life. And you've ignored me, the life giver. So what God has essentially done here is that he has said, your spiritual condition is such that you have rejected me. I am the source of living water. Now he is giving them a physical example of what they have done to him. He said, okay, you're going to turn from me, the source of living water. Well, then I'll turn from you and give you no water. And so their nobles have sent the servants to go get water. They've come to the cisterns, and they found no water. They have returned with their vessels empty, and they have been put to shame and humiliated, and they cover their heads Because the ground is cracked. The ground is so dry. For there has been no rain on the land. And so the farmers have been put to shame. They're not able to do the work that they're supposed to do. They go out. They labor. They plant the seed. They try to grow things, but they don't grow. And so they are put to shame by God. And so they, too, have covered their heads. Verse 5. For even the doe in the field, notice now he's going to turn to the very thing we read earlier and say even the animals are suffering as a result of what you people have done. The natural instinct for a doe, by the way, is to take care of her young. And yet, for even the doe in the field has given birth only to abandon her young. She's so desperate for food. She's unable to nurse her children. She abandons her children and leaves them to die because there is no grass. And the wild donkeys stand in the bare heights and they pant for air like jackals. And even though donkeys are supposed to have very good eyesight, it says here their eyes fail Because there's no vegetation. Even the animals are starving to death because of what the human beings have done in breaking covenant with God. So then the people respond. 
Jeremiah is speaking here apparently on behalf of the people. This is the beginning of their pleading with God, reminding God of who he is in relationship to them. And they say, although our iniquities testify against us, O Lord, act for your name's sake. That seems like a good plea. God, just do it because of your own reputation. Do it because of who you are and the fact that we are the people that you chose. We are your covenant people. So for that reason, we beg you, we plead with you, even though we know we're sinful. So it looks like there's repentance and then worship and faith toward God. O Lord, act for thy name's sake. Truly, our apostasies have been many, and we have sinned against you. And you, you are the hope of Israel. It's Savior in time of distress. And why art thou like a stranger in the land? When a stranger would pass through a land, he doesn't care about that land. He's not a resident of that land. He's just passing through it, and he'll be gone eventually out of that land. So they're saying, why is it that you don't care about our land? Our ground is parched. Our animals are dying. We're in desperate estate. Why are you like a traveler who has pitched his tent for the night? You're just here temporarily, and then you're gone. Why are you like that? Why are you like a man dismayed, like a mighty man who cannot save? Why are you acting like a weakling? You have the capability to do it. You could save us. Why aren't you doing it? And yet, thou art in our midst, O Lord. And we, who are we? We are called by your name. So you're the mighty God. You're the saving God. You're the hope of Israel. You're our savior in times of distress. So why aren't you helping us? And we, we are the people who are called by your name. So do not forsake us. Doesn't that sound like a good prayer? Everything about that, we would say, well done, good prayer. God's response is surprising. Because as I said at the beginning, rather than respond with, oh, you're right. I'm sorry. I forgot who I was. I forgot who you were. Come on, you knuckleheads. You were, I know you messed up. And now you've admitted you messed up. You repented a little bit. So verse 10. Thus says the Lord your God to this people. Even so, they have loved to wander off. They have not kept their feet in check. In other words, they went wandering and they knew they weren't supposed to. I've given them the law. I've told them not to chase after other gods. I told them not to intermarry with other people. I've, to, I've told them what to be like, but they go wandering off so freely and they have not kept their feet in check. I like that phrase. Therefore, the Lord does not accept them. And now he will remember their iniquity and call their sins into account. Very interesting. Because this is the same God who told David that he would cast the sins of his people as far as the east is from the west to be remembered no more. And here he says, but those sins, I'm going to remember. Mm. This is a God who can decide which sins he's going to remember. 
and which sins he's going to forget. That's the level of sovereignty he works at. He deals with individuals, and he deals with people groups, and he deals with people according to their faithfulness toward him and their obedience and their worship toward him. And therefore, the Lord does not accept them, despite the fact that that sounded like a good prayer, despite the fact that we would all say, oh, yeah, well, that'll get God. God will hear that. And we know how God is. God's tenderhearted and long-suffering, and God's going to go, oh, okay, now that you recognize your sinfulness and your iniquity, then I'm going to forgive you. He doesn't do it. He forgave David. He doesn't forgive these people. He didn't remember David's sin, but he remembered these people's sin. And he's going to hold those sins in account. I will call their sins to account. He will make them responsible for them. He will hold them guilty for their sins. Verse 11, so the Lord said to me, do not pray for the welfare of this people. I mean, that's kind of startling. You would think that God would say the way he did with Moses. I mean, Moses was able to intercede for Israel when God wanted to. He brought Moses up on the mountain, and he wanted to just wipe them all out. And he said, I'm going to kill them all and start again with you. And Moses interceded effectively. Here he says to Jeremiah, don't intercede. Don't get in my way. I'm going to correct my children. I'm going to correct these people. And don't you pray for these people. Don't you intercede for these people. Don't pray for their welfare. And when they fast, that is a sign of their repentance toward God as part of their worship. When they fast ceremonially, I'm not going to listen to their cry. And when they offer burnt offerings and grain offerings, why would they do that? Well, the law says they're supposed to. So they're going to come to the temple because God is afflicting them. And so they then think that they can change God's mind. We're going to bring sacrifices to him. And even though we're in famine, we're going to burn animals. We're going to bring grain to him. And when they offer their burnt offerings and their grain offerings, I'm not going to accept them. And so can God listen to people pretend to worship him? Can God see people go through the stuff of religion? Can God watch people apparently worshiping him, singing to him, doing the stuff of church these days? Can God see that and reject it? Said so here. Because it really is up to God, and that is all part of God's sovereignty. And I just don't think enough people recognize that that's the God that you have to deal with. The Lord said to me, do not pray for the welfare of this people. When they fast, I am not going to listen to their cry. And when they offer burnt offering and grain offering, I am not going to accept them. Rather, I am going to make an end of them by the sword, by famine, and by pestilence. Why? Because that's what he promised them. That's what he said he would do. And remember when he made that covenant with them at Mount Sinai, the people all said to Moses, everything God said is good. And they agreed to the covenant and said, all that God has said, we will do. Okay, you made an agreement, you didn't do it. 
And so God is doing exactly what God said he was going to do. I'm going to make an end of them by the sword and by famine and by pestilence. So now Jeremiah is going to say, again, in trying to intercede for these people, his argument is going to be, well, they've been bewitched. They don't know the truth, even though, yeah, they have the law, even though, yeah, you sent them some prophets. The fact is, they have some prophets that are telling them completely wrong stuff and telling them that they are at peace with you. And so that's why they don't understand it's the prophet's faults. There's going to be a lot of people who get to heaven and say to God, oh, my preacher never told me. I didn't know this is what you were like. My pastor never told me. I went to church. I did religion. I was there. I did the stuff. And they're going to try to blame, well, the prophet you sent me never told me. Now, you would think based on that, God would renege and say, oh, right, okay, it's not their fault. I get it. And again, God is going to respond really harshly. But, ah, Lord God, I said, look, the prophets are telling them, you will not see the sword, nor will you have famine. But I will give you lasting peace in this place. So it's the prophet's fault. It's not their fault. Don't punish them for what the false prophets are doing. And then the Lord said to me, the prophets are prophesying falsehood in my name. I have neither sent them nor commanded them nor spoken to them. They are prophesying to you a false vision, divination, futility, and the deception of their own minds. Does that sound familiar at all? I mean, how often do you ever hear a preacher on TV, on the internet? We have so much access to preaching these days. How often do you hear people say things that just aren't in the Bible? It's just stuff that they're making up. Whether we're talking about large religious organizations like the Catholic Church who are just making stuff up about Mary, just making stuff up about purgatory. For a long time, they were making up stuff about limbo. And then one day, the Pope said, OK, no more limbo. And it was like, all right, get these babies out of here. Suddenly, no more limbo. So people make stuff up in the name of God all the time. And they do it in order to advance themselves, their own egos, to gain followers to themselves, to get into your wallet and in order, and in order to create some kind of organizational structure where they get to be the top of the pyramid scheme. That happens in religion all the time. And God knows the difference and says, these prophets, could I add these preachers? are preaching falsely in my name. I have neither sent them nor commanded them, nor have I ever spoken to them. They are prophesying to you a false vision, divination, futility, and the deception of their own minds. Therefore, thus says the Lord concerning the prophets who are prophesying in my name, although it was not I who sent them, and yet they keep saying... There will be no sword or famine in this land. Because of that, by sword and by famine, those prophets will meet their end. God loves irony. 
The same way that the people rejected the living water, so he turned off their water. The same God who says, these prophets who are saying there's not going to be any famine and you're not going to die by the sword and you're going to be protected and you're going to be okay. God says they're going to meet their end by the sword and by the famine. The people also, the people are not guiltless. Remember Jeremiah tried to say it's not the people's fault, it's the prophets' faults. God says the people also to whom they are prophesying will be thrown out into the streets of Jerusalem because of the famine and the sword, and there will be no one to bury them. Their dead bodies are going to lay in the street. And neither them, nor their wives, nor their sons, nor their daughters, for I shall pour out their own wickedness upon them. Okay, so God holds you responsible for what you're listening to. People rejected his word in favor of things that would tickle their ears, in favor of hearing the things they wanted to hear. And again, that's going on just everywhere these days. You can build a great big church if you're willing to tell people that they're great. God thinks you're a handful of aces. God thinks you're doing just fine and dandy. People will flock to that. Same thing in Jeremiah's day. When the prophets told them, oh, don't worry, God really loves you. You're doing great. You're doing fine. There's not going to be any famine or pestilence. It's not going to be any sore. Don't worry. Well, of course people would listen to that. Jeremiah is saying, no, you're going to end up in bondage. You're going to be taken into Chaldea, into Babylon, and you're going to serve there as slaves. Well, people don't want to hear that. You're guilty. God is judging you. People don't want to hear that. If you preach America is under the judgment of God, which is why all the stuff that's going on is going on, people don't want to hear that. They want to hear, no, we're great, we're fine. And God holds people responsible for who they're listening to and whether they are paying attention to his word or whether they are paying attention to false visions and divinations and futility and the deceptions of people's imaginations. And how are you going to know the difference? You have to know his word. And you have to be willing to hold every preacher against the word of God and ask yourself, is he saying what the Bible says? Therefore, thus says the Lord concerning the prophets who are prophesying in my name, although it was not I who sent them, yet they keep saying there shall be no sword or famine in this land. By sword and famine, those prophets will meet their end, and the people also to whom they are prophesying will be thrown out into the streets of Jerusalem because of the famine and the sword, and there will be no one to bury them. Neither them or their wives, nor their sons, nor their daughters, for I shall pour out their own wickedness on them. And you will say this word to them. Let my eyes flow down with tears night and day, and let them not cease. What an interesting thing for God to say. Go tell the people, yeah, you're going to cry, you're going to mourn, it's going to go hard, and you're going to suffer for it. For the virgin daughter of my people has been crushed with a mighty blow. 
with a sorely infected wound. Here again, we see a demonstration of what we talked about several times in the Old Testament, that when God is punishing Israel, he likens it to a sickness, to a disease, to a wound, to an incurable wound. And so here again, they are sorely infected with this wound. So they have this infectious wound in them. How are they ever going to be healed? That's why it's so important that Isaiah, in speaking of the Messiah to come, would say that by his death we are healed. And he's talking to Israel when he says it. The cure for our wound, for Israel's wound, is only Israel's Messiah taking the wound for us. You'll say this word to them, let my eyes flow down with tears night and day, and let them not cease, for the virgin daughter of my people has been crushed with a mighty blow, with a sorely infected wound. If I go out to the country, behold, those slain with the sword. In other words, if I leave the city and I go out to the surrounding hills, all I'm going to find is dead people. Or if I enter the city... Behold, the diseases of famine, exactly like God said, pestilences and famine. For both the prophet and the priest, the ones who are supposed to be leading in Jerusalem, both the prophet and the priest have gone roving about in a land that they do not know. They're going to end up in Babylon. They were supposed to be leading the people to keep them away from their enemies, and instead they've led them right into their enemies' hands and are roving about in a land that they do not know. And so the people cry out again to God. They take another tact. The first one didn't work. God didn't relent. God doubled down. Hast thou completely rejected Judah? And hast thou loathed, hated Zion? Why hast thou stricken us so that we are beyond healing? I mean, we should at least be redeemable in some way. Why are you striking us in such a way that we're beyond cure? We waited for peace, but nothing good came. And we waited for a time of healing. But behold, terror. We know our wickedness, O Lord. The iniquity of our fathers, for we have sinned against thee. Do not despise us for thine own name's sake. Do not disgrace the throne of your glory. Remember and do not annul thy covenant with us. I find that ironic because God is doing all of this because he's keeping the terms of the covenant he made with them. They are again reminding him, we're your people. We're the covenant people. Out of all the people on planet Earth, we're the ones that you actually chose, that you brought out of Egypt, that you gave promises to. We're the descendants of Abraham. We're the ones with the land promise. Just remember that covenant with us. And don't annul it. Don't do away with it. Please remember it. Are there among the idols of the nations who give rain? This is God responding. Really, out of all your idols, out of all your carvings, out of all the 
the Gentile idols and gods that you're serving, can any of them give rain? I can, because I'm withholding it from you. You're suffering under it. So go pray to those little things you cut out. Go pray to your little pieces of wood and metal and see if they can help you. God's making a point here. I'm the only God who can do these things. And yet you give the worship that is rightly mine to the creations of your hands, which you learned to do from these Gentile nations who I specifically told you not to learn from. And you've rejected me, the source of living water. Are there any among the idols of the nations who give rain? Or can the heavens grant showers? Is it not you, O Lord our God, who does that? Therefore, we hope in you, for thou art the one who hast done all these things. So by the end of the chapter, it seems like they're getting it. It seems like they're understanding the lesson. Okay, we're getting it. We're under famine. We're under persecution. Are you going to wipe us out completely? Okay, we admit you're the only God who could do this. Our idols are not any help to us. So then... You would think at this moment God would relent. Chapter 15 is a continuation of the same thing. We're just going to read the first couple of verses and we'll pick it up next week. Then the Lord said to me, says Jeremiah, even if Moses and Samuel were standing before me, my heart would not be with this people. God triples down. They keep going back to him and attempting to worship, attempting grain offerings, attempting to do the worship. And God says, I'm not accepting it. They cry out. They plead to him. God says to Jeremiah, don't pray for them. Don't intercede for them. Don't get in my way. I'm punishing this people. I'm afflicting them with a sorely infected wound. And then they even admit, you are God. You're the sovereign God. You're the only God who can bring rain and withhold rain. And therefore, we recognize you and your sovereignty have done all these things. You would think that would be the point at which God would say, finally, you got the lesson. And instead, God says, even if Moses and Samuel were standing here. Now, remember, Moses and Samuel did manage to intercede for the people of Israel. So God's calling up a couple of good intercessors and saying, even if they were standing in front of me pleading for these people, my heart would not be with this people. Send them away from my presence and let them go. They're going to go to Babylon no matter what. And it shall be that when they say to you, where shall we go? Then you're going to tell them this. Thus says the Lord. The NASB here is going to add the word destined to each of these sentences because it's implied but the Hebrew is those for death go to death and those for the sword will go to the sword and those for famine will go to famine and those destined for captivity will go to captivity and I shall appoint over them four kinds of doom declares the Lord the sword to slay, the dogs to drag off, 
and the birds of the sky and the beasts of the earth to devour and to destroy, and I shall make them an object of horror in all my kingdom. Boy, when God wants to go horrible, how horrible does it get? So God is really angry at these people, and God is going to show his holiness by the way that he judges these people, the way he holds them in account. He has given them so many benefits of all the people of earth. They're the ones who got his law, who got his precepts, who got his prophets. They're the ones who got the oracles of God. They're the ones who God has revealed himself to. God expects an appropriate response from them, and instead they got comfortable with him and went chasing after other gods, thinking they could somehow improve on him, or that, yes, it'll be God and some other stuff. And God says, no, you're going to worship me and only me, or I will destroy you. And that is the God of the Bible. It's the only God of the Bible. That's a scary God of the Bible. You can see why we're supposed to fear and worship and love God. An appropriate reverence, an appropriate fear for God will go a long way toward driving you to your knees, worshiping that God appropriately and accordingly. Don't get overly comfortable with him and don't think that he's just going to wink at the continual depravity of our nation. The way that we continue to reject him, reject his precepts, reject his word, reject his prophets, they're going to be judged. And God keeps laying out his own history and saying, look, I've done this. But as I said at the beginning, God not only tells you what the history is, he tells you why. Why these things happened. So these things happened to Jerusalem. There's no question about it. We know historically it actually happened. Jerusalem was completely overthrown by Nebuchadnezzar, and they did go into the Babylonian captivity. That all happened. But God tells us why that all happened. And it happened because of their rejection of him and his word. Got it? Sure should drive you to your knees. Because you're dealing with a really, really sovereign God. And if he has decided to choose you and put you in Christ and Christ in you to seal you with his Holy Spirit and guarantee you covenantally that he is going to cast your sins as far as the east is from the west, knowing that he's perfectly capable of remembering and judging whatever sins he wants to. Boy, if he's done that for you, even more reason to get on your knees. Thank him for being that kind of God. listening to this week's Salvation by Grace midweek message. We encourage you to visit our website at salvationbygrace.org for books, Q&As, and our ever-expanding archive of audio sermons. And we invite you to join us next time when we gather around the Word and study the sovereign grace of God.